What was that you said? Ha I believe. It is said that if you believe uh, in the wonder and magic of the North Pole and of Santa and his sleighs, that you will be able to hear the bells on his sled ring. And if you do not believe, then you will not be able to hear the bells ring. That story of the Polar Express is a beautiful story written about a young man who in the realities of life began to fade in his belief of the wonder and magic of Christmas and of Santa and of the North Pole. And, and so he goes on a journey, on a magical train, uh, on a journey to the North Pole to discover uh, what he had started uh, deciding was no longer true. And in that beautiful ending scene where he's ringing the bell that he cannot hear and then suddenly believes and then he hears the bell and then Santa shows up and we feel this deep sense of warm fuzzy feelings that finally what we knew was coming has come. This seems to be a central storyline in our Christmas story that we have authored. The, this invitation to believe in bigger things than ourselves and wonderful magical things that cannot possibly be possible but yet somehow are possible. This seems to be a storyline that travels throughout Christmas. There's really two main ones, right? Now the one is don't forget what's most important and we find Find that storyline in things like uh, Christmas with the Cranks or um, in storylines like uh, uh, Home Alone or storylines like uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation where we watch people basically uh, tear themselves apart through the Christmas season and everything that could go wrong goes wrong and we laugh uh, wholeheartedly because we see ourselves in the story, in the chaos. And then at the end of every one of the stories, they're all hugging in some room, realizing that despite the fact that they're ticked at each other, they actually love each other. And we go, oh, and that's the one storyline. And then the other is this one. To believe, to believe in bigger things. You see that in the Polar Express, even in the movie Elf. I mean, one of my favorite Christmas movies, you see it there. Some guy comes from the North Pole, he tells everyone it's true, nobody believes him, and at the end of the movie, what happens? The sleigh flies off, and the reporter who's talking sees the sleigh, and the jaw drops, and eyes get big, and she goes, it's true, and she believes, and we go, oh, and we're just so excited. Where do these storylines come from? Why are these the central storylines? Why is this storyline of believing in the impossible things such a big part of every story in Christmas, Miracle on 34th Street and everything else? Where does it come from? When we enter into the actual events that took place uh, that first Christmas that have birthed this season for us, the actual people that actually had things happen to them that set up the story we live in now in Christmas, we discover in there some of the clues to the mystery why these central themes tend to make their way into the stories we author about Christmas. 
If, if you were here last weekend, you know that we began to travel into the Christmas story and we discovered ourselves in a little town of Nazareth, a real place that sits uh, close to the border of Israel and Samaria. Uh, it's sort of off the beaten path. It's a very rural setting. It's not one of the urban centers of that time in Israel. Nothing like the places like Jerusalem or Jericho, not even like the medium towns. Very small town, people growing up in Nazareth, really simple life. They have simple but good dreams. They're not dreaming about building high rises and changing the world. They're dreaming about being a, a great son or daughter, a great husband or wife, raising kids, loving God, being part of the synagogue, providing well for their family, and, and, and building, carving out a good life in a little town, honoring their family name. I mean, this is, this is what they dream about. We bumped into uh, Mary and Joseph, teenagers, um, that had been betrothed to one another, uh, that were excited. Uh, Joseph was working hard on building the house that Mary would move into on his dad's property, probably even right up against his dad's house. This was typical in that, uh, in that, in, in that tradition. And uh, during that time, uh, Mary collided with divinity. She collided with God as God sent a messenger, Gabriel, to speak with her. And in that message, her life, her dreams, her, her vision for what was going to be a good, a good story, was turned upside down and inside out. Everything changed for her that day. And we saw as that rippled out into the life of Joseph and then the lives of others around them. Uh, we kind of ended our time last weekend still in Nazareth. We made mention of the fact that Mary and Joseph were going to travel far beyond Nazareth and that their lives were not going to be easy as they traveled. But we didn't really get into that part of the story because we were still in Nazareth. So that's where we are right now. Mary is pregnant. She's well on her way toward birth. She's in the last trimester. Joseph has been told uh, that she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. He saw the vision in his dream by an angel. He has chosen to stay step into that story. So they are moving forward in that town. Uh, we don't quite know what the town is talking about, but we know Mary and Joseph are content now for now in that story. There is word that gets sent uh, across Israel that a census needs to be taken. Uh, the powers that be wanted to gather information at how many people were there because, frankly, they wanted to start pushing taxes further, and they needed to know if they were actually getting enough money from all the people. And so the powers that be drove that people would go to the town of their particular ancestry. So they had different ancestral tracts, and they, they gave you, if you're a part of the house of this, that, or the next thing, then go to this town. Uh, David uh, was born in Bethlehem, and so if you were of the line of David, King David, you would have to go to Bethlehem to go and register there. They didn't have the uh, electronic web that we have today where you can do it electronically from wherever, so you actually had to go somewhere, and the easiest was to make people go where you wanted them. Joseph had decided that he would travel by himself to Bethlehem. His wife was pregnant, no need to drag her with him, but Mary knew that uh, the baby would come and didn't want Joseph to miss out on that and decided to travel with him. I'm sure there were multiple conversations going on about this is a crazy idea, don't do this, but Mary pushes through and says, I'm going with you. They traveled to Bethlehem and on their way there, I think, 
probably they underestimated the trip with a pregnant woman. When you go on a car trip with a pregnant woman, you gotta know, man, it is not going to be the regular stage of hours. You gotta add multiple hours because there's multiple stops along the way. And so I'm sure it took longer than Joseph anticipated. When he got older and he had more kids, I'm sure he figured that out. But he's a young man, doesn't have any kids yet. So, uh, so he's moving forward and, and they traveled and I'm sure Joseph, when he planned to go by himself, had calculated how long and now it's suddenly taking longer. They get to Bethlehem one evening, and I'm sure at this stage it's far further along than they intended, and Mary is going into crisis mode. She is in labor, the baby is coming, Joseph gets into Bethlehem, and as any good husband, in a panic, he begins to do what he needs to do to try to get off the street. At night in Israel, not a great place to be out on the street, you've got uh, the reality of robbers and bandits that uh, don't give a rip about what your situation is. Uh, you've got wild animals. This was not like our world that we live in now. There were still uh, things running around that could eat you at night. And so generally, the nighttime wasn't a great place to be trying to birth a baby. Uh, and so Joseph wants to get indoors. Uh, he starts knocking on doors and asking if he could get in because it was typical that in that time you didn't have hotels that you could go stay in. Uh, you knocked on people's doors. That's what you had. And then they would uh, room you for the night, essentially. And sometimes you would pay a fee for that. And so it would function like an inn. Well, Bethlehem is in its own strange place because remember, we are in the middle of the census. People have traveled from all over Israel to go to their hometown and King David was a big line. And so probably in Bethlehem's lifetime, this was one of the largest influx of tourists that they had seen in a very, very long time and probably one of the largest they would see in a very long time. Vendors have been planning for months on this one and because you don't have hotels, every household has been trying to figure out how to be lucrative on this. Imagine if your city was told the Olympics were coming your way. Now, I know our friends in, in Rio de Janeiro have that reality, and, and I've got friends there that are actually trying to figure out how to get out of town during that time and rent their house out, because man, there's big money in that when the Olympics are around. So this is the Olympics for Bethlehem, right? And so here's what you do. Uh, the other rooms in the house where everybody's been sleeping, this is where the kids all come sleep in mom and dad's room, including the married ones, right? I mean, like, everybody in mom and dad's room, because we're renting out the rest of the house. And people are staying on the floor on the mats, you're jamming them into every corner because Every person in the house uh, is, is more, more lucrative, not to mention for some of them who would have loved to get the lucrative reality, their family came to town because they are of the line of David. They probably grew up generationally in Bethlehem. They moved away. Now they're back and you stay with the family. And so some of them are like, shoot, the family's coming. We can't rent our houses up. But there are people on the mats everywhere in the house. Joseph is banging on doors. And as each door opens, it's later in the evening now from what we're told. And so you can imagine you've just gotten the kids down. Things are just settling down the house and some crazed guy is banging on your door. You are not a happy camper. You open the door. You go, what do you know? I mean, can't you see? The house is full. We are a full house. I can't. And, and what do you think Joseph's going to do? Is he going to say, oh, that's cool. No, because Mary's standing by the donkey like this. Joseph! Ah! And so he's going, uh, please, don't you understand? my wife is pregnant, which you would think would solicit compassion, but if you have a full house with sleeping kids, what do you not want coming in there? Is a pregnant woman who's about to birth a child. I mean, you go, that is not coming in here, man. And so I wonder if Joseph may have even said something
something like this. Uh, the baby that's going to be born is like the Messiah, uh, the Christ, the Savior. This could be a big story for you. 200 years from now, your house, think of it, big sign, baby born here was Jesus. And so uh, maybe he didn't, but I mean, I'm just saying, I would have tried anything if I were a husband with a pregnant wife who was about to birth a child. But the reality is that all the homes were full and life was too busy. And so nobody let him into their house. I, I do wonder sometimes, uh, later on in life, when these people passed into eternity and found out that knocking on their very door of their very house, the actual creator and sustainer of the universe who was about to be born, it was his uh, human mom and dad knocking, and they had a moment in time where potentially uh, the, the Christ child could have been born in their home, and their story entered into the chronicles of God for all of eternity, and they missed it because their house was too full. They didn't shift things around, it was too complicated. I wonder if that was a good moment. You know, I just wonder. There was one particular couple, uh, a man uh, at first, an innkeeper as they call him, uh, where uh, they came and, and he said no at first and then uh, he had compassion, probably his wife in the back going, come on, you look at her, you can't just leave her out there. Where do you want me to put her? Where? You're gonna move the kids? No, but we gotta do something. Can, can we put her in the, can we put her in the, in the with the animals? And, and so he goes, well, I guess we could do that. So they would have these caves out back that were sort of where they kept the animals at night. Now, it sounds kind of crazy uh, and, and harsh, but it's really not. The, the cave was a very safe place. They could put the animals away for the night where all of the coyotes and wolves and stuff couldn't get to them. They would be warm and safe in the cave. And so the, 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 the guy goes, you know what? We do have a space for the animals and it's better than birthing a baby out in the street. We love to put you in the house, but it's just not doable right now. And so Joseph goes, yeah, we'll take it. And they go into that little stable, uh, barn kind of cave place. And there, in the quiet of this night, in the very center of Bethlehem's most in unbelievable busy month, quietly, without anyone's knowledge, born onto planet Earth as the single most significant person that ever lived because that person was our creator in flesh and blood. And Bethlehem had no idea because they were busy with a lot of stuff. They weren't evil people trying to ignore the coming Christ that they'd been waiting for centuries, millennia for. They just had full homes and lots of stuff going on. There were a couple of guys that were hanging out very close to Bethlehem. Bethlehem sits five miles from Jerusalem, the big city. It's kind of like a, a, a suburb of Jerusalem, but sort of far enough out that you don't really do a whole lot with Jerusalem. Think of the suburbs that you're far enough that if a big Broadway show is coming to Orlando, you might go, but you ain't gonna go shop in Orlando, right? Uh, you're, you're West Orlando, maybe you're uh, in, the, in the sort of Claremont, Groveland area and beyond, where you're just kind of going, I, I, I don't live in Orlando, I, I live here, I'm not crazy like the city folk, but if something cool is in Orlando going on, I can always get there. That was Bethlehem, right? And so uh, right around Bethlehem, there were hillsides and, and there were some shepherds watching sheep. Now, because they were watching sheep here, uh, some of the sheep they were watching were probably set aside uh, for the sacrificial system because they're this close to Jerusalem. And so very possibly they are raising some of the sheep that are gonna be going to the slaughter for the sacrifices uh, that Jesus is going to be compared to, kind of crazy stuff. But they are watching sheep. Now, shepherds, when they're watching sheep, just so we're clear, your on time, your game time is at night. 
During the day, you're chilled, you're relaxing, you might be trading up, maybe some of you are sleeping, some of you are watching, you only need one or two shepherds during the day watching a group of sheep, because really, essentially, there's very little danger during the day. The sheep, sheep can see, which is good. Uh, coyotes and wolves and bears don't come out during the day unless they're very daring and very hungry, and you can see them from a distance, so you can chase them off. Bandits don't try to steal sheep in the middle of the day unless they're very daring, and if they do, well, then you chase them off too, but at night, at night, everything comes out right? All the wolves, all the coyotes, all the bears, they come out and they want sheep. And all the bandits, that's when they start. So none of you sleep at night if you're a shepherd. You're all on, you're all awake, you're all vigilant. And the shepherds are watching sheep through the night. The sheep that you have probably do not belong to you if you're a shepherd. Maybe one or two of them, but you're probably hired by some powerful player in the city who has wealth or sheep or by the temple priests and you're watching the sheep for the sacrifice, which is even a greater responsibility. And so you know this, during the night you watch those sheep. You don't take your eyes off the sheep. If you lose a sheep, it comes out of your pay. It comes out of your deal. If you lose more than one sheep, your reputation diminishes and you might lose your job as a shepherd. If you lose your job as a shepherd, your well-being, your provision for your family is gone. So one thing you do not do is you do not leave the sheep at night, ever. You do not sleep. You watch. And we bump into a couple of shepherds on the hill who are about to have something happen to them that is going to be life-changing. Grab your Bibles and turn with me. Uh, to the book of Luke, and let's jump into the story now. Mary and Joseph in the uh, little cave uh, right around Bethlehem, and um, Jesus is born in the quiet of the cave in the hustle and bustle of Bethlehem. And in uh, Luke chapter 2, we pick up the story there with these shepherds. Uh, page 556 of the Bibles we provide for you. If you're using one of those, feel free to go to page 556, Luke chapter 2, if you're using one of the Bibles that you brought with you or one of your smart devices. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Here's what it says. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. You see, there's all the information we need for what the context is for these shepherds. They're out in the fields right near Bethlehem at night watching the sheep vigilantly. It says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. You'll hear me say on occasion, whenever we bump into an angel, uh, the, the, the glowing person showed up and it doesn't say in the text they're glowing. Well, guess what? Here we have it. Thank you very much. They're glowing right here. Do you see that? I mean, they show up, it's dark and the glory of the Lord shone all around. These guys fight off bears, they fight off wolves, they fight off bandits, they do not fight off glowing people. And so when this guy shows up, they are afraid and they fall down and they want to run away. But they don't run because they got sheep to tend to. Fear not, the angel starts with. That's how angels always start because if you ever bump into an angel, you're gonna be scared out of your mind. And so you would hope that the first words are the angel says, fear not. If he says, fear much, then I would tell you to be very afraid because then he came for something very bad. Um, so fear not, for behold, the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
Now, just so you know, when this is said to these shepherds, they would have immediately connected to what the angel was declaring. See, in our context here, a lot of times our education is going to be a, a, a consequence of what kind of job we then have, right? So if you see somebody with a, a certain job, you can determine kind of probably where they fall on the education scale. That was not true in the time of Jesus. All of the Jewish children would have been educated equally in their early days and on probably till the age of uh, 11 or 12. That's when the diversion would take place depending on what career you go into. Uh, by the time children were six years old in this context under the great care of a rabbi uh, in the synagogue, they would have been trained through the first five books of the Bible. They will have memorized all five of those books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They will understand them deeply in terms of their value to their life and the prophetic value of the story they're telling between God and his people. Between age six and 11 or 12, they will have memorized very large portions of the rest of the Old Testament. Some of them would have memorized all of it. If by 12 they were phenomenal at their understanding, their articulation, and their memorization, a, dis a, a rabbi may have chosen them as a disciple. The rest would have become people that worked in great jobs, like being shepherds, carpenters, uh, fishermen, and so on and so forth. And so, these shepherds understand the Old Testament. They know the first five books of the Bible. They know God's love for them. They know that God has promised that he was going to send a Savior, a Messiah, who would come. They know the Messiah was going to be of the line of David. They know that the Messiah was going to come to rescue his people from the tyranny of those who oppressed them. Uh, every empire that had existed, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and now Rome, and here they are with an angel declaring in prophetic language, this night in the city of David, of the line of David, is born the Christ that's been promised to you. This would have been an awesome moment for the shepherds going, are you kidding me? This is huge. Now look what the angels say. Well, the angel says, and this will be a sign for you, verse 12, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. The angel gives them some information as to what they might observe if they go out and find the child. If you go into Bethlehem and you find some uh, family in a cave with, uh, in a manger with some clothes around it, that's going to be a clue to you that that's the one we're talking about. Okay, now take a look what it says. And suddenly there was uh, the, uh, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another. Now, before we look at what the shepherds said, let's just observe some things about these angels, right? So one guy shows up, and he tells them this great news, and if you notice, what you observe here is that he lays out no command for them. See, when the angel met with Mary, uh, the angel told Mary what was going to play out. Mary, you are going to be pregnant with a child, so this is how it's going to roll. When the angel showed up with Zechariah, he said, look, your wife is going to have a child. You're going to call him John. That's how it's going to roll. But in this case, there is no command. There is no angel saying, look, here's the deal. In Bethlehem, there was a baby born tonight, and you are going to go see him. And you're going to find him, and here's the address, and this is what you're going to look for. And I, I just want to be very clear, that's what needs to happen. There's no threat here. If you do not go to Bethlehem and find the baby tonight, we are coming back for you at 3 a.m., and it's going to go badly. 
And in case you're wondering, these are my brothers right here. Boys, woo, oh, heavenly host. It didn't play out that way. This was not a threat. That moment where all the angels showed up was an act of demonstrating the magnitude of what just happened so that they would say, what we've just told you is such great news that it is worthy of the heavenly host worshiping the creator. And they show up in worship so that these guys go, whoa, this is big. But there is no demand on them whatsoever to go find the baby. They are just told some information. The baby's come. It is the Messiah. He's in Bethlehem. And if you happen to go look for him, look for somebody in a manger wrapped in some clothes, a baby. The shepherds talk about this. They said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in the manger. This is an extraordinary moment for these shepherds. Because understand, yes, I get it. Big moment, angels. But this is what I would have played out if I were there. Okay, either I would have gone, let's split this up. Okay, I'll hang with the sheep. You go down to Bethlehem, find the child. When you find him, say hi, come back. Then you watch the sheep, I go. I, I might have done that or I might have done this. We're not that far from mourning. A baby, when it's born, it's born, and then in the morning, it's still there. And frankly, I mean, you don't want mom having you show up in the middle of the night. Hi, I heard you just birthed the child. I'm a stinky shepherd. Can I touch him? That's not going to play well, right? And so I would have easily said it would have made total sense for the shepherds to say, nighttime is dangerous for the sheep. We have a responsibility to watch these sheep. Uh, that, that we're going to go see the baby in the morning. It's not like Jesus is going anywhere, and we'll just wait for the morning. The scripture says when they talked to one another, two things were true. They said, let us all go now. And they said they went with haste. With haste they went. They did not wait they did not allow the realities of their day to say, if you leave the sheep, do you understand? The balls drop, people get mad, and the whole world is against you. You can't do that. You need to be here. You need to get done what you need to get done. Then you can go and hang out with this story. Now, these shepherds head straight out. Now, when they get to Mary, awkward moment. Take a look. It's so awesome. And, and no doubt, an awkward moment, and so they, they play it out well. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the sayings that had been told them concerning the child. The scripture says the first thing the shepherds did was it quickly explained why they were there, right? Wouldn't you? Knock, knock. Hello, Mary. Can, can, I, can I help you? Yeah, so um, here's the deal. This is going to sound super strange, and if you don't want to let us in, we totally understand. But we were out watching some sheep and this glowing guy showed up. I know, it's totally out of the box, but, and then there were more glowing guys, and they said you'd be here, and, and here you are, and so we were just wondering if maybe we could just take a peek, because he told us uh, that this is the Christ child. If that's news to you, then sorry for the shocker. <laughs> to which Mary, we even see in Scripture, responded so beautifully, because this was not news to her, was it? I mean, can you imagine her saying, come in, I've got a better story than yours. I've got a better story than yours. Joseph, my husband, he's got a big story too. Seems big stories are happening. Look, it, it, it says it here. It says, and all who heard the story the shepherds told, uh, heard it, wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. 
I mean, they just went away, life changed, absolutely in awe, just blown away, hearts warmed. Wow, we got to see the Messiah and share in the moment. And here they are in the story. While all this is going on, some crazy stuff is happening a world away. A couple of hundred miles away, which in this day would have been a long, long travel, eight, nine hundred miles type of distance. They are these guys in the region that used to be Babylon. We don't know much about them, but what we do know is that they studied science. They looked at the world and how it functioned and how it, how it moved. And uh, on the, uh, during the time of Christ's birth, uh, in the sky appeared an anomaly, a, a strange star of sorts, something that didn't belong, that in all their observation and all their study uh, didn't fit into the standard deal. Well, this fascinated these guys, and so they're looking at the star, and they're kind of going, what is up with that? And so I can imagine they begin to study and try to figure out where this star is coming from. We don't know if they have Jewish heritage because of the Babylonian uh, occupation many years ago, or if they just had a history of some of the Jewish scriptures. We'll talk about that in a second. But as they begin to look at the star, and they begin to try to figure out what it is and why it's here, uh, you can imagine as they start digging in and studying and working and frustrated, and what is this? and why is it here, they start remembering together, oh my gosh, there's something about a star we remember. And they dig into some of the scriptures that they had, perhaps because they're Jewish, perhaps because of the history of their world. You see, many, many hundreds of years before that, when Babylon was in occupation over the entire world, they took uh, the Israelites and they took the best and brightest of the Israelites and they brought them to Babylon to integrate them into Babylonian society. It was a way that the Babylonian empire brought together societies and made them all Babylonian. And so they found a couple of young men we get to know about, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. They come to Babylon, and they become a great story that we still have uh, information about today. Daniel becomes an incredibly wise man, has visions from God. He actually writes a document we know as the book of Daniel uh, that talks about future prophecies. And in that, brings legitimacy to the scriptures and to who God is. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shape the very nature of Babylon more than Babylon shapes them. And because of that history, these guys have this lingering sense of what was to come, and so they do their study, and they find out in the scriptures that there was prophecies about a star. And when the star would come, that it would, it would be a sign of the king of the Jews being born, who would be the king of kings. So after their study and they're looking at the star, they decide if this could be true, if it might be true, on the off chance that it is true, we don't want to miss out on a moment where the king of kings is going to be born. We want to go honor him. They have no business doing this, but they pack their stuff and they make the long journey that probably took them a great deal of time all the way to where the star takes them, which lands above Bethlehem, which is five miles from Jerusalem. And if the king of the Jews was born, the king of kings... Then you had Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Which one would you go to? So they go to Jerusalem. That's the right choice because that's where these kinds of people are born. They go and they start asking questions. Now, we don't know when they showed up, and it, it differs in terms of opinion, but uh, likely... The star appeared at the birth of Christ, and so this is months later, probably about a year later, that they're showing up in town. And so they might guess, well, the party's you know, over from the birth time, but now, now we want to meet the king. And so they start inquiring, and, and nobody knows what on earth they're talking about. 
Now imagine, right, an entire uh, year, maybe a few months have gone by, Jesus and Mary and Joseph are probably in Bethlehem recovering and waiting to travel back to Nazareth. They don't want to travel with a small child. It's very dangerous during those times. And all this time, nobody in Bethlehem or Jerusalem has figured it out. I'm sure the shepherds have been telling stories, but who listens to the stupid shepherds, right? And so nobody knows, and so the word gets out and it gets to Herod, who is currently the king of the Jews. And and this is what it tells us. Turn with me to the uh, book of Matthew, chapter two. Matthew, chapter two, is on page 523 of our Bibles. 523, Matthew, chapter two. And it says in verse one, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard of this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and, assembly, and assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod gets word of this, Herod is king of the Jews, and Herod inquires about where this baby is. Herod, we find out, tell the wise men, listen, would you go find him, he's in Bethlehem, and when you do, after you've worshiped him, would you come tell me, because I also want to honor this new king of the Jews. Herod had no intent of honoring the king of the Jews, here's why. Because Herod knew that any person who was born who was going to be king of the Jews threatened his story for himself. Herod had a story he was writing for himself. It wasn't God's story for Herod, it was Herod story for Herod, and he defended his story at all costs. He had murdered family members, he had murdered friends, he had murdered anyone that threatened his throne, his story, his dreams, his way of life, what he wanted for himself. Anything that stood in his way became his enemy, and he moved past it. I don't think it probably started that way, but it sure got to be that way. And Herod was looking to eliminate any threat to his story, and to to essentially get away from it. So he said to these guys, you go, you worship him. These wise men, after traveling great distance, doing great study and looking deeply into these things, following a star that they did not know would guarantee anything other than potentially being part of the great story of the king of the Jews, find Jesus. They worship him there. They give him gifts which become the provision for Mary and Joseph to go to Egypt later on. And they leave. In leaving, an angel comes to them and says, listen, don't go back to Herod. He's crazy in the head. You just go back to where you come from. I'll deal with Herod. So the wise men uh, don't go back to Herod. Herod finds out that they skipped town and didn't tell him where Jesus was, so he has no way of finding out. And so Herod makes a decision to protect his story from God's story, to protect his way of life. He says to his army, any child within range of the age of this child, so let's call it one, so we'll go two just to be sure, any child under two, slaughter them. If they're in Bethlehem, kill them. An incredibly violent and horrid reality takes place shortly after that because Herod wants to protect his story. And so he slaughters a bunch of children. This is why the the angel told Joseph and Mary, you need to go to Egypt. It is a terrible end to that story. Every one of these people we just bumped into 
were invited into the story to believe in something bigger than themselves, something impossible, something wondrous, to believe that the promises of God that he had made over the centuries were in fact true and had come true despite 400 years of silence from God through the prophets, that God was still at work and still producing his story. They were invited to believe that in the town of Bethlehem under the line of David was born that day the Christ child who would come to rescue his people, including Herod if he had so chosen to step in. They were invited to believe in multiple different ways. Some were invited to believe because someone banged on their door and said, I've got a woman, she's pregnant, she's about to have a baby, it happens to be the Christ child, could we come in? And they said, we'd love to, we really would. All the good intentions in the world, the house is full, we're busy. Some were invited in by angels in a field. Oh, it's beautiful. But in order to really step into the story, they would have to let go of their livelihood and their potential and risk everything leaving immediately. They could have waited till morning. No one would have faulted them, but they didn't. With haste, they went. Some were invited into the story by an anomaly in the sky because they'd been listening and observing for a long time. They wouldn't even have noticed the star if they hadn't been studying. And then after the star, they had to study some more, and they had to dig and dig and dig and dig, and then travel and travel and travel and travel. They went to great lengths uh, on a whim that maybe this is what they thought it was. Some were invited in that way. No angel showed up for the wise men. Go, go, I promise it'll turn out well. And some were invited in because some wise men showed up and gave them info. And they were also invited into the story, but they chose to preserve their story over God's, and it ended violently and badly for them. See, this is where the central theme of Christmas comes from. We are invited to believe in these magical and wonderful things like the North Pole and the big guy in the red suit because that's the story we write because that's the story the gospel wrote for us. And when we write it our way, that's what we write, come and believe. Now, there's a big difference between the stories we write and the story God wrote. The stories we write, we call ourselves into believing into magical things that aren't possible, that, aren't, that, 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 are, that are impossible, and, and we believe in them because we believe in them. I mean, there is some evidence, I'll give you that. I mean, the cookies are gone in the morning, that is true. And the eggnog is also gone, usually three quarters. I just don't think he can get through all that eggnog in one night. The reindeer food also, that is also gone, and the stockings are full. So there is definitely some reason there to kind of go, huh, maybe the big guy came with the sleighs. And if you listened well enough at night, you, you, you may have even heard the bells. It might have been the fireworks from Disney, but it could have been the bells too. So I'm just saying, there, there's some there, but all of that evidence that we have there, it's evidence that, that is still very questionable. So we really, have to, we really have to muster up a lot of belief in that. And so it's there, but... The belief that we are invited into to believe in this has a very different foundation of evidence. We have, we have well over 3,500 years of historical archeological story that is fascinating and wondrous that gives us the evidence that we need. It starts right here with this. This is a singular story written by God of his story with us, but it is written by 40 different authors. Uh, some warriors, some poets, some musicians, some shepherds, some everything. I mean, you pick it. They're all over the, the place. They wrote over a period of 1,500 years in multiple cultural contexts, in multiple language contexts, in multiple generational contexts. Some were old, some were young, some had experience, some had none. Some were passionate, some were quiet, some were extrovert, some were introvert. It's all over the place. 
all of these 40 authors with all of their human fragility and their human flawedness, pouring their humanity onto pages in a book with all their spelling mistakes, and what is born out of that is a central, absolutely beautiful story of redemption, telling the story from beginning to end in perfect sequence of God's rescue of our story over all that time. We have history on that. Uh, Not only that, but in this beautiful story, that story of redemption that is a singular story weaving its way through perfectly is told not through one story but through hundreds and hundreds of human stories. God took our insanity and told his story through our story as he wrote our story for us. And we saw it through men and women by the hundreds in here. That's why we know Abraham and and Moses and Ruth and Sarah. That's why we know Rahab and Peter and John and James. That's why we know these people because it's God's story, singular, written through our hundreds of stories, plural. And yet, nothing ever changes in here. It's perfect and wondrous. We have archeological and historical evidence of the beauty of the power of the resurrection, and we have men and women in those early days of the New Testament church that laid their lives down without a second thought when they were asked to deny Christ, because they saw things we have not seen the 12 that followed Jesus, 11 of them martyred before their time in human terms because they were asked to deny. We're told that maybe they stole the body. If I stole a body, man, let me tell you, when they're about to crucify me upside down, that's when I kind of go, can I rethink this story? But those guys said, you don't understand. We watched him walk out of a grave. We watched him ascend into heaven and we heard him say, fear nothing for I am with you and I am preparing a place for you that will be beyond your wildest imagination and they would die for that. We have 2,000 years of history since then on which we stand as we've watched the gospel advance into the darkness, and we've got the life story that impacted us so deeply that still resonates in us. But our invitation over Christmas is not to believe facts. We have plenty of those. Not to stand on facts. We have lots to stand on, but to believe in promises again promises of God, because those are harder to believe in than the facts we have in history. The promise that God has rescued our soul, that's an easy one. We've got all that history for it. He's rescued us. That's good. I'm going to heaven. But the promise that God is rescuing our story right now, that's harder to believe, isn't it? Because the circumstances would beg to differ, wouldn't they? They would tell you, no, it's a mess now. God's forgotten you. He ain't for you. I mean, look what he's doing. Look what he's allowing in your life. The circumstances dare us to believe that God's promises are not true and they are not faithful and he will not pull through for us and that he's forgotten us. When things get tough, either because we've stepped into difficult stories or because we have found ourselves in difficult stories on this planet, it's hard to remember, hard to believe that God's promises are still true, that the work he began in you, he will finish and that he's gonna get it done. To believe that God will rescue us that despite your pain and your hurt and your struggle, despite your mess and your insanity and your sins, despite the stuff you've done or are doing, that somehow God promises that he will write a redemptive story through it, that when it comes to the end of your life, if you look back, you will see his beauty written into your insanity. That's hard to believe, isn't it? It's hard to believe because the circumstances of life tell us otherwise. Brooke and I, (laughs) we just came out of a crazy run. So we had a trip planned to Colorado for a soul care retreat. Woo, beautiful. It was so nice. Go care for the soul. You'd think that would produce awesome things, and it did. It did. 
And then we had a good stretch about four weeks between that trip and the next one we planned in the fall, which was a trip to Brazil, an opportunity to go speak into the lives of pastors and their wives there to see them expand the gospel in Brazil, and we wanted to do that. When we go away for a trip, especially trips like that, it takes about a week to a week and a half of absolute unrelenting time and energy from my wife to plan for that. We have eight kids. Carpool alone takes a week to plan. The meals, it's all healthy. My wife's amazing. She plans the meals. She plans the system. She plans the carpools, all the activities. Who has to be where? What sleepover happens when? Who's going to watch who where? It's multiple people watching our kids in multiple settings over a multiple space of time because no one person is capable of doing what Brooke does. My wife is a superhuman, so we can't invite one person into that and say, do what Brooke does, because they will die. <laughs> and so she works a wondrous system for that, and then she has a, a manual, and then you think I'm kidding, but I'm not. It's broken down into 15-minute increments for the entire seven days we're gone. What happens when we tell the person watching the kids who's the main manager, if you divert from the plan, good luck, because getting back on track takes some more, so don't divert from the plan. That's my wife. Then we come back from a trip and there's about a week and a half of recovery because the kids were with someone fun and we're not fun. And so they're like, oh, we hate you. Why are you back? And so and then you're going through all that and you're having to discipline out of them what these other people poured into them. And we said, stay with the plan. You didn't. You gave them ice cream when it was not ice cream night. Now they think that's the new rule. And so you recover from all of that. Trouble was, in the middle of these trips that we planned fairly well, two opportunities popped up that we didn't anticipate. Our church won the Angels and Adoption Award, and so we were going to go up to D.C. to speak with congressmen and congresswomen there. And we didn't want to miss that opportunity, but that one was right in between Colorado and Brazil. So our nice three-and-a-half-week plan, week-and-a-half recovery, week-and-a-half planning, suddenly turned into a week-and-a-half on either side between trips. And you can't recover for a week-and-a-half and plan for a week-and-a-half simultaneously. So that kind of threw things off. And then right after our Brazil trip, there was an opportunity to go up to Jacksonville for two days, just two days. Jacksonville, I mean, that doesn't sound bad. And so we're like, we could sneak that one in. It's a great opportunity. And, and we realized what a mistake all that was because essentially we went, wonderful trip, massive recovery, half dead, plan, 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 not enough time, wonderful trip, massive recovery, burnout and death, plan, 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 awesome trip. But the trouble is it didn't end on a trip. See, if it had ended on a lifetime trip away to Europe, then I wouldn't be here and we wouldn't be talking about all the upside down, but it always ends with coming home. So after four wonderful trips, you're still in the death recovery stage. And then we got home, and then we entered into the quiet season of December. And December was crazy. When we enter into January, we'll be able to finally take a breather because all we have in January is six birthdays in six weeks in my home, February, January and February. So my wife is in a tailspin, I'm in a tailspin. Our kids figure out our weaknesses quickly and go, they're not thinking straight, let's take advantage of this. And so they come in at force and they push hard back so they get in a tailspin. And in between all of that, my wife and I find ourselves just perfectly aligned on the same page. We find ourselves just uh, connected and having an incredible time. No, no we don't. <laughs> you people are so gullible. No, when that happens, you, you stop talking, you stop liking, and, and, you, and you just kind of go, and, and, and it's a covenant reality for a short season in life. We, just go, I, we, we are together in this life, and that's what it is, and that's how it's going to be. And so you're very disconnected, and you're discombobulated, and you're in a mess, and you're going nuts, and, and, and the circumstances shout at you from there, don't they? They shout at you. 
Uh, man, th- th- this is how life goes. Life has teeth and it has claws and it's coming for you. And, and God, is, God is, is not as present as he ought to be. And you're in crisis and it's not going to go well. And then you start believing, I'm not a good mom. I'm not a good dad. I'm not a good husband. I'm not a good wife. I'm not a good this. I'm not a good that. Where is God working in me? Look at all this stuff. It's a mess. Our family's a disaster. And you have these conversations. They're not a disaster. They are a disaster. It's not as bad. It is as bad. Because you have the proverbial optimist in me and the proverbial realist and Brooke and we're extremes and it doesn't go well. And in the midst of all of that, the Christmas season shouts at us, come and believe. Believe that God is writing redemption in the very center of that mess. That it's not going to last long, it never does. It's going to fade away and come back to God's story in no time. And don't just believe but act, fight back. Fight back, my wife sent me a text last night. The services were done here and my kids were farmed out to multiple places for sleepovers and I'm driving home and Brooke sends a text and she essentially says in the text, let's, let's fight back. Let's not live here. Let's, let's move forward because why? Why do we move forward? Because we believe God has a better story, a bigger story for us than lingering here. We're all gonna face circumstances that dare us not to believe, right? It's gonna be like the story. Some of us will face circumstances that say, look, Jesus will come around again. The house is full right now and there's lots going on. There'll be another season in a month where I can engage more deeply with him, but right now it's just too much. That dares us to say, there's too much going on for you to make space, room, significant room for the Christ child to enter into your story. You don't mean it. You're nice like me. You, you love Jesus. You'd love to know that he's in your home being born there, but it's just there's people everywhere on mats you can't there's lists to get done you can't don't let the circumstances convince you that your house is too full to make space this christmas for the incredible reality and beauty of jesus for some of us it's going to be the sheep you know the angels show up they remind us it's christmas but there's all these sheep we have to take care of and if we don't you don't understand it's christmas you don't understand this season busier than ever things have got to go 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 and i will i in the morning, when the sun rises, I will go to Bethlehem and see him. Go with haste. Go with haste. So that you do not find yourself stuck in the realities of the world. This is the invitation of Christmas. Believe that there is something bigger happening than you can imagine in God's story and go with haste. Sometimes it just takes a lot of work, doesn't it? A lot of study, a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of effort. You've got to travel a long way, not in real terms, but in your heart to get to Jesus. And so it's discouraging. You give up halfway. I just, I pray and I feel nothing. I've read the scriptures and it's just dry right now. I'm so busy. So I just, it, since I get nothing out of it, I'm just gonna stop for a while. And I would challenge you as the Magi would challenge, just because it's just difficult and hard and tedious before you get there, don't give up because when you do, you find the Christ child in the manger. You worship there and you are in awe. And your story is made beautiful. Their story is chronicled for all of eternity in the chronicles of God, the three, the, the, the wise men. I mean, how awesome is that? They had no idea. But they worked and pushed through the hard stuff to get there. For some of us, for some of us, we have a story we're trying to live. It feels right. It feels good. It's what we want. It's what everything in us, all our feelings tell us is right. It's not God's story for us because God's story tells a different story. He calls us to more difficult things, into more difficult covenants and difficult commitments and difficult stuff. But our story just feels so right right now. It's what we want. 
And so we begin to push God out of our picture because we just, he threatens our story. His commands threaten our story. His call threatens our story. And so we run after ours instead of his. And know this, it has violent ends every time. It's violent on your soul and violent on your heart. Trust that his story is better than yours and bigger than yours. And even though it feels less than yours right now, it's not. See what Christmas does? It invites us to believe that God has rescued our soul, that he is rescuing our soul despite our mess, and he will rescue our story despite our insanity. And we are called, invited, by different means, some knocks on doors, some angels in the sky, some anomalies, and some just information given from one to another, we are invited to believe, to be reminded that God is here with us, that he came for us, and that his story that he's writing in us and through us is one worthy of living in haste despite the work. And then what will we find? Like the shepherds and the wise men, unlike those in Bethlehem and Herod, we will find our souls light, we will worship, we will be in awe, and we will be blown away. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what he made us for? Come, believe, worship. Let's pray. God, thank you for your incredible, wondrous invitation once again to come this season and to see the noise for what it is, to see the circumstances for what they are as they shout to us and try to convince us that you are not with us, that our story's better than your story, that we should pursue our stuff instead of your stuff, that we should believe our hearts over your heart, that we're too busy, that there's too much going on to hastily allow you in, and we can do that tomorrow or the next day or the next month. God, may we be awakened this season through this story this weekend to go with haste, abandoning the sheep that we feel so responsible to try to keep together, the balls we feel so responsible for keeping in the air, the plates we feel so responsible for spinning. And may we let them go for a, a moment in time and trust that as they fall, you will do what you must because we are going with haste this season to go and discover what waits for us in a manger, in a story, in a moment. May you call us into belief once again. Not belief in the big things that you came and died, we believe that well, God, but the belief in the momentary dailiness that you are here, you are for us, and your story is better than ours. And may we live in your story instead of our own, trusting your voice over the voice of the circumstances around us. Thank you for this invitation this Christmas, we pray in Jesus' name.